Glad you're here with us today. We are continuing our study in the nine marks of a healthy church. Now, I'm going to go ahead and put you guys on notice. Uh, I'm not real sure how this one's going to go today because, honestly, I worked and labored all day yesterday. My wife can tell you this, putting the final PowerPoint stuff together. I usually wait later in the week, uh, I study during the week, but then I don't usually put this together to the last second because I'm always wanting to put this in or I find something new that I'm reading or listening to or studying and I'm like, oh yeah, that would be good. And so I usually put that together at the end. And I labored all day yesterday. And anybody remember the storm that came through yesterday? Yes, you know where this story's going. I'm telling you, I was done. My wife calls me to supper. Woo! Go over, I eat, I come back, and I didn't like the, the cursive. I knew I wasn't going to be able to see it real good right there. So I said, well, I'm going to change the font. I'm going to change the template. And I went to change something, and I didn't like it, so I was, went to delete it, and I deleted it. And I never saved it. Now, I know some of you computer people say, well, all you got to do is go to your trash file. Yes, thank you, Nate. I contacted Pastor Nate, and that's what I did. <laughs> Guess what? It wasn't in my trash file. I went and found all kinds of hacks. I think I've got, you know, somebody in Russia taught me how to really. It's not there. It was nowhere to be found. So I just said, okay. And I started again. And guess what else happens in the middle of the night? Get a phone call at about mm, 11.45. And... Somebody who had an issue with their staying in my in-law's house, and the air conditioner went out. So I had to go over there and try to fix it. And I'm not a havoc guy. In fact, I'm not having none of it. And so I was like, eh, you know, I don't know what's wrong with it, buddy. And had to call an emergency hotline. And so 1.15 in the morning, the AC gets fixed. And Pastor Jeremy gets to finally come back and put the finishing touches on this. So I want no back talk about grammatical errors, <laughs> all right? And if I jump from one book to the other, just go with it today. That's what I'm saying, all right? So anyway, now I do trust that, hey, the Lord had a reason in it, and I have been asking, <laughs> what, Lord, is it? But, uh, so... Anyways, we're all good, guys. It's all good. We're going to continue on with this study. Nine marks of a healthy church. Who knows what number we're on? Seven. Hey, good, good eyesight. That's excellent. Yes, we're on mark seven. <laughs> church discipline. <gasps> yeah. Church discipline. Guys, after doing this study, I mean, I was convinced beforehand, but after going through this study, there is nothing clearer in New Testament practice than this subject. But you've got to ask yourself, is this really being done in our churches? I mean, I can't even imagine what something like this would look like in a mega church. I know of one church that's a very, very large church that practices this biblically, consistently. And that's John MacArthur's church. Grace to you. He's really good about it. In fact, those who are, on the, who are under church discipline, they actually read their names out loud prior to communion as, a, again, a loving admonition and warning to repent before they partake. And that if they do not, then they are not allowed to participate in the Lord's table. Now you say, that's harsh. That seems harsh. Well, I'm hoping today you'll understand that church discipline is not harsh. Church discipline is the love of God. No different than how you love your children. And when you love your child, you correct, you exhort, you discipline. Not because you hate them. Not because you want to see them pitch a fit and whine. No, you do it because you care for them. You want to see that whatever it is corrected. And so I want you to keep that attitude as we study this this morning. That God, as our Father, loves His children. And He loves His church and gave His life for her. And this is serious stuff. And we need to wake up, church, as to why we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. And therefore, we must glorify God in our bodies. 
And so with that said, let's look to the Lord in prayer because I truly desire His presence and leading in this difficult subject. Father, it's not a fun subject, uh, just being honest. Um, uh, whether we were under the hand of corrective discipline as a child or even in adult life, and uh, be it uh, work or um, other relationships or within the church context. Uh, Lord, we recognize that it is from your loving hand, and I pray that your spirit will illuminate and enlighten us today as to why, if we're going to be a healthy church, we must practice church discipline. Give us your wisdom, Lord. Give us your biblical truth and balance as we do this as a practice in our life as uh, believers. And Lord, just ask for that uh, blessing today as as I teach, that you would just allow me to be a vessel used by you, and that you'll give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. We all need discipline. All of us. Without hesitation, we should all admit our need for discipline, for shaping. None of us are perfect. None of us have... uh, We're not finished projects. We may need to be inspired, nurtured, or heal. We may need to be corrected, challenged, or even broken. Whatever the particular method of cure, let's at least admit the need for discipline. Let's not pretend or presume that we are just as we should be, as if God has finished His work with us. It's not supposed to be Mark Never. It's supposed to be Mark Dever. Like I told you, stop it! Don't... <laughs> Oh, I know, you're just being corrective. Okay, I accept it. Mark Dever, in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, um, which, by the way, last Sunday night, I said, how many of you have gotten this book? How many of you are reading this book? Randy, bless you. I'm going to call you out. She was the only one who raised her hand, been reading it. Okay. It's free. I say it again. It's free online, PDF. Check it out. Read it for yourself. But anyway, this has been our kind of go-through. And you know me, I'm not a topical guy, but that's where we've been. And so he makes this quote, and it's a great reminder, guys. None of us have arrived. We need this. We need this in our own lives, right? And so as we press on, what does the Bible say about church discipline? Because again, you're not here to hear my opinions. They don't amount to anything. I can assure you of that. Um, But what does the Bible say about church discipline? Well, let's take a look. Go to your, in your books, uh, Hebrews. If you need a Bible, should be one in the pew in front of you. And let's all go to Hebrews 12, 6 through 14. You should be somewhat familiar with this passage of Scripture since we spent 20 years in... I'm oh, sorry, it was what, two years in Hebrews. And so you should be kind of familiar with this passage. <clears throat> but if you would, notice what it says. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. So that ought to settle it right there. That, okay, the disciplining hand of God is out of love. Those whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So in other words, if, you know, if there's not the corrective formative measures happening in your life, then you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith because there's no way you're going to practice a lifestyle of sin. You cannot live in an active lifestyle of sin knowing this is against God's standards, this is against God's way, God's character, God's word. Live in that, practice that, and think that somehow God's okay with that because of grace. No, he says, if you're not under the disciplining hand, the chastening hand, it may be that you're illegitimate. You're not even a child of his. That's pretty scary and sobering because the Bible says we can be self-deceived in these latter days. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed, our earthly dads, for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But He, God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of His Holiness. Don't miss that last phrase, guys, because this is God's desire in all of us. This is the purpose of His chipping away at our rough edges. 
This is God's desire in our walk, in our life, to form us more and more into the image of His Son. And sometimes that comes through testings and trials and tribulations and blowing it and messing up and being rebuked and corrected and exhorted. And, and so, again, it's because of love. It continues. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And there again, that's the focus. It, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness with which no one... with, with without which no one will see the Lord. God makes real clear to His church that discipline is needed. And apart from that in our lives, guys, we have to examine, are we even in the faith? And it comes in different forms, and we'll look at some specific corporate ways of approaching it. But even in our daily living, as we spend time in God's Word, we're confronted with corrective measures. We look in the mirror and we see, oh, I got a nose hair. Either I tuck it or pluck it. Uh, anyway, that's pretty gross. Um, but I correct it, right? I correct it. Hey, I got an excuse. I was up till 2 a.m. <laughs> I, I, and so when we look into the Word of God and we see things aren't right, we should desire to correct it. And we should let God have His way for the sake of holiness and for the sake of righteousness. That's love, guys. That's love. And so um, our attitude and response to what God is desiring to do. And he said, you can either have healing, all right, them feet are lame, or you can continue with hard-heartedness and we can dislocate it. I mean, you know, people, and I've seen it, I, I've experienced it, you probably have... When, when we're going to do it our way and not God's way and we're going to dig in our heels, you better hang on because something, something's going to come. And, and so God, again, says it's not, it's not to be a killjoy. It's not to you know, ruin your parade, rain on your parade. It's for healing. It's for health. It's for you to be at peace. It's for righteousness. It's for holiness. And so it's important. So... What does the Bible say about church discipline? Feel free to write those down because we're not going to go through all of them. And some of you may want to look at some of these tonight in your care group. Feel free to. But this is the New Testament passages. And guys, the Bible has a lot to say about this subject. A lot to say. So why is it we don't see it? Why is this not happening in our churches today? And I would say this is why Mark Dever puts it into his book is because it's, we're not healthy as a church. Churches are not as healthy as they could be and should be. And, and I would make the argument it's because we've departed from God's way of doing church. And so we've got to examine ourselves. We're going to the great physician for a checkup. And that's what this study has been this summer. And we may get a good clean bill of health. Right? In God's eyes. But we still need to go in for this checkup. Now, I know my wife's going to throw that back at me because I need to schedule a doctor visit probably. Just, just saying. You know, stick with it. All right. <clears throat> Church discipline seems kind of negative, right? I mean, I don't want to talk about church discipline. Yeah. I mean, that's just kind of negative, right? It's a downer. You know, we want joy in Jesus. We want to, you know... Let our spirits be lifted high. Nobody wants, this is negative, you know? Is it? Think about discipline. Is discipline always negative? Well, let me give you some examples. Uh, discipline is often positive, or as it's traditionally called, formative. You guys remember the Brady Bunch, right? Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Is this Jan? I guess it is. Notice the headgear. Discipline, formative, corrective. My son has braces. My daughter has braces. Some of you have had braces. Now, it's painful, I hear. All right? 
But what's the end result supposed to be? Yeah, straightens you up, right? It's for your good, right? That's corrective in nature. But that is positive in the end. Again, for now, maybe a little painful, maybe a little suffering for the current situation, but the end result of that corrective measure is positive. Picture me when I was a kid. Just kidding. Hey, there's a six-pack coming soon. Just saying. Lifting weights. Exercise, right? Go see Randy at the gym. Gold's Gym. Check it out. If you need a membership, she'll talk to you about it. All right. <laughs> a little plug there, sorry. Um, but, you know, exercise, little, no pain, no gain. That's corrective. It's formative. It's a type of discipline, right? <laughs> a discipline I have not mastered. Thanks for pointing that out. But we're getting there, right? I'm a work in progress. But it is important. How about self-control? Man, there is no greater discipline than self-control. That's a fruit of the Spirit. And so believers take some discipline to exercise self-control, right? So it's positive. It's not negative. Uh, again, it's for our good. God told the people of Israel, His plans are for their good. And I would say in principle and in character, the same thing within church discipline context. When we are having to do discipline, when we're wanting to plead with a brother or sister to repent of their sin, it's not because we're wanting to throw a wet blanket on their lifestyle. It's because we care. We care about your soul. And God is pleading through us as an agent and representative and ambassador to say, stop. Guys, you say you know Jesus. But His Word says this, and you are not following this. And He says, if you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. So don't deceive yourself and don't lie and don't cover it up. Don't keep it in the dark. Bring it out in the light. Let the light expose your deed. And the light says, this is wrong. Please. That's love. That's not hate. That's not judging. Well, let's talk about that. What's the point of church discipline? Well, the number one point, God demands holiness. And let's be real, guys. I think the modern church movement has emptied a lot of our churches of its holiness. Holiness being set apart from the world. We're to be set apart. We're to be different. We're to look different, we're to walk different, we're to talk different, we're to sound different. It's not a fake, it's not a mask, it's not a hypocritical wearing it uh, on, on your shoulder kind of thing. No, it's a genuine sincerity. It's authentic. It's a work that the Spirit of God is doing within all of us to change us, to transform us. And so we need to let God have His way. He demands holiness. From Adam and Eve, from the very beginning of time, we were created in the image of God. The Scriptures tell us that you and I were created in the image of God. We're image bearers. God is holy. He intended for His people to be holy in action. And of course, we know Adam and Eve, in attitude, in action, rebelled against God. They chose their way instead of God's way in the fall. But again, from His chosen people Israel, he, God... God demands holiness from His chosen people Israel. Leviticus 19.2 says this, quote, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is concerned with His people's holiness. From Adam and Eve to His chosen people Israel. The Old Testament established this concept. So when we think about this church discipline, when we think about its purpose in creating and cultivating holiness in our midst, this is where it's, this is where it's foundationally found. Numbers 15, 30 through 31. But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he's native-born or stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord. And he shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt 
shall be upon him. That was God's command to his set-apart people, Israel. Church, we are his set-apart people today. The New Testament commands it as well. We find this in 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Let's all turn there, please. 2 Corinthians. Take your Bibles. If you don't know where uh, Corinthians is, then go to the index of your Bible. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and let's begin our reading in verse 14. And follow along, please. God bless you. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, or what parts has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. He goes on. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Guys, we need, a, we need a proper understanding of the fear of God again in our life. And the Lord help us to regain a, a, a genuine fear and awe, A-W-E, of God. Because it's the fear of God that, that leads to wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. And so we need to do some self-evaluation. We need to do some looking into the mirror. And we need to be transparent before a holy God and ask God to shine a light in our own hearts, in our own lives as individuals, and say, God, what are the areas where I need, I need training in holiness? Where is the discipline in my life that, that I need correctively, formative to help me? What do I need to lay down? And so, again, be careful when we ask that, because God will out of his love, bring that as you request that. He's not desiring that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. And so church, as believers, he's given us some pretty clear instructions just in that verse passage we've read. And so let's collectively have a visit with the physician great physician. And let's ask him to help us uh, see what's needed. What's the medicine I need? We see this. God demands holiness. And we saw its foundation in the Old Testament. We see its practice in the New Testament reiterated. But I know what some of you are thinking. But what about judge not lest ye be judged? Phrase of the day. The most used passage out of context. Anybody ever heard that? Anybody have somebody say to you, you know, well, that's kind of judgment. We're not supposed to, we're not supposed to judge others. Anybody ever heard that say it? A handful of us, a couple of us, yeah, yeah. Well, I thought you're not supposed to judge. This, 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 this whole church discipline thing, that sounds like a lot of judgmental Christians. And that's the kind of thing that makes me sick, you judgmental Christians. Well, this might be one answer. People tell me, judge not, lest ye be judged. I always tell them, twist not scripture, lest ye be like Satan. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yikes. Depends on the person, I guess, who's telling you. Judge not, you know. Um, 
But it is a twisting of Scripture. That is a twisting of Scripture. The world will throw at you, and do not let that cower you. And especially if a professing believer hurls that at you, then yes, we have a responsibility to bring correction to the statement. Let's look at the passage in context. Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged. Even Siri will tell you that, right? For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? I always like to say, it's like I got a telephone pole coming out of mine, and I'm talking to you about your toothpick coming out of yours. I mean, that's not good, right? It says, or how can you say to your brother, and again, this is to your brother, not to the unbelieving world. I expect the unbelieving world to act like lost people. But a believer should not be. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a telephone pole's in your own eye. So again, if we're going to do proper biblical discipline, we better make sure the subject we're addressing, we're not guilty of ourselves, right? How do I know that? Well, let's keep reading the context. This is Jesus' answer. Hypocrite! First, Remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So is Jesus saying don't judge, or is he giving you the proper way to judge? He's giving you the proper way to judge, right? So if I'm coming at you, and you're struggling with alcohol, and you're boozing it up, from a guy who used to booze it up, and by God's grace alone, let me make that clear, because I tried to stop many times on my own. wouldn't happen. But when I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and He delivered me from that, I now have the right, because that pulls out of my eye, and I can come to my brother and plead out of love to turn from this addiction, from this sin of drunkenness. Because I can clearly see now. That's not judgmental. That's a brother who loves a brother and knows the damage that that can bring. And so Jesus said, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now, here again is a little soft warning. You don't want to do this to the wrong person. You need to weigh your battle. If this is someone who's maybe not a believer, they're just self-righteous religious, sometimes you don't need to bring correction in those situations. They're just going to trample it under feet. They could care less. And look, let's be honest. There are people who come into the church. They're going to do it their way regardless. They've got Jesus of their imagination, and they're going to compartmentalize their life and do what they like in the Bible, and the parts they don't like, they're going to ignore. And so he's saying, look, don't, don't cast those pearls before swine. You're given truth that's, that they're, they're, just, they're not spiritual. They're not going to discern it. But isn't it interesting? Let me ask you this question. Judge not, lest ye be judged. When's the last time you called somebody a hypocrite to their face? When's the last time you called somebody a dog or a swine? Jesus, you sound kind of judgmental in those... It's right there, y'all, black and white. Jesus is being judgmental. Shouldn't do that, Jesus. And I'm being sarcastic, obviously. I don't normally talk this way. Well, maybe a little. <laughs> My wife says, why do you always do the woman voice? I said, sometimes, honey, I do the man voice. You know, maybe not as much. I said, I just do a woman's voice better. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe I should repent of that. Okay. Anyways, guys, don't let the world pigeonhole you out of fear with twisting the Scriptures. That is what Satan did. Context, context, context. So, John 7, 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Sounds like to me God's asking us to be discerning, right? 
He's asking for us to make right judgment. Well, how are you going to make sure this is a right judgment? How do I know getting drunk is sin and wrong? Hey, it feels good, man. If it feels good, do it. Who's the authority in that? Self. But if God says drunkenness is a sin, am I going to go with my understanding or am I going to lean on His truth? Well, uh, well, you know what? Uh, that, that, that person had it come. You don't know what that person did to me and I will never forgive them. You don't know what they put me through. Am I going to go on my own understanding? Or am I going to look at God's word and he says, if you're not willing to forgive your brother, then I won't forgive you when you stand before the Father. I mean, I'm paraphrasing the passage, but the truth is there. How can I, a sinner, not be willing to forgive a fellow sinner when a holy God was willing to forgive me? Well, preacher, there's my man voice. Preacher, you don't know my wife. She's crazy. She's just crazy, man. So my secretary, she understands me, and we're going to live together for a few years. Well, that may feel right, but God says it's sin. Am I going to go on my feelings? Or am I going to yield to the truth? We can go through scenario after scenario after scenario, guys. And again, this is not for the intent to condemn or throw rocks or stones. No, this is genuinely out of a loving heart that says God loves you. It's awesome because whom, whom God loves, He reminds them, He spanks them, He chastens them, He gets their attention. That's a good thing. I don't go around spanking your children. There's a reason for that. Boy, I want to some days. No, and you say, yeah, we want to do yours too. Okay. I'll handle it. You let me know. Trust me on that one. Just let me know. But again, God loves his children, guys. So don't let this be a thing that hardens you, but something that moves you. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. You say, how do we have the mind of Christ? Well, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, believer, and you have the very word of Christ. You have his authoritative truth. So we can discern truth in error. Not because we're self-righteous. And if that's your attitude and approach in it, then get off your high horse. Take heed lest ye fall. But to humbly rely on the authority, that's wonderful. It's wonderful we have that. Judge not. Well, we're told to judge ourselves. 1 Corinthians 11.28, Hebrews 4, uh, 2 Peter 1.5. I'm moving quick, so we're going to move forward. Here we go. How about this one? We are also told to judge one another in the church, though not in the final way God judges. Now that's the one thing that we cannot do. Just because someone is currently in a lifestyle of sin, just because someone is currently practicing, someone is away from God, we cannot dogmatically say that they will forever be damned. Now, what is a true statement is, unless you repent and put your faith and trust in who Christ is, and I'm speaking to an unbeliever, I'm speaking to an unbeliever, if you don't repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you will die and go to hell. That's a true statement. That's not a judgment of their final condition because my hope and prayer is they will repent and receive Christ. You understand the difference, right? So, Jesus' words in Matthew 18, Paul's in 1 Corinthians 5-6, through 6, and many other passages clearly show that the church is to exercise judgment within itself and that this judgment is for redemptive, not revengeful purposes. That's very important. We don't do church discipline to be revengeful. We do church discipline because God has commanded us. And it's for redemptive reasons. It's in hope that the person will be broken and realize, God, forgive me. 
forgive me. I, I, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm going to trust you it will work out. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but by faith I'm going to believe in you and I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to seek the counsel of, of those around me who know Christ. I, I'm, I'm going to be accountable to the church. I want, to, I want to do what's right in your sight. There's a difference in attitude in that. In the case of the adulterous man in Corinth, you know the book of Corinth, the guy's having an adulterous relationship with his stepmom. And the scriptures are calling him out on it. That's what 1 Corinthians is all about. Go read it. It's scandalous. And so, um, in the case of that, uh, and, and also in the false teachers in Ephesus, Paul said that they should be excluded from the church and handed over to Satan. That doesn't sound very loving, preacher. We're not sure which voice that was, but anyway... Paul said they should be excluded from the church, handed over to Satan so that they might be taught better and so that their souls might be saved. Don't take my word for it. Read the book. And guys, I'm thankful that this church follows biblical instruction. And I'm thankful that in the nine years I've been here, I only know of one case where we've handed someone over to Satan. And I would be reminded this morning that we still pray that that person come to genuine repentance. Because God is not desiring for His children to carry His name through the muck and mire. And when there's genuine fruit and repentance, we will celebrate just like the angels in heaven, just like the prodigal son who returns. We can do that in attitude and spirit when there's genuine fruit in repentance. Paul, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told the church to do this. Church history shows us. Consider the 1561 Belgic Confession. This is what this was the code, the Reformed Church, the, the Belgian Confession had this statement. Here's what they followed. This is what they adhered to. The marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments, the Lord's table, as in, instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin, In short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary, thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church, hereby the true church may certainly be known, from which no man has a right to separate himself. How many churches adhering to that today? Five reasons, and I know what time it is, so I'm going to move quick, so right quick. Five reasons for church discipline. Here we go. Hang on. All right. For the good of the person disciplined. That's the first point. For the good of the person disciplined. That's a reason. Um, the man in Corinth was lost in his sin, thinking God approved of his having an affair with his father's wife. He actually thought that was okay. A lot of people you will confront in the church think they're okay with their lifestyle, even though God's Word says no. And so, realize this is for the good of the person being addressed. And so, uh, people in the churches in Galatia, read the book of Galatians, they thought that it was fine that they were trusting in their own works rather than Christ alone. Remember, they were legalistic in their practice. They were saying, we need to do some more of the religious rituals and jump through certain hoops. And so he said, no, 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 no. And so there was corrective measures happening. And again, for the good of the person. Also, we see this. Alexander and Hymenaeus, they thought it was all right for them to blaspheme God. 1 Timothy 1.20. Again, put out of the church, turned over to Satan. So they would learn not to blaspheme. But none of these people was good in good standing with God. We can think it, but it doesn't mean we are. Out of our love for such people, 
We want to see church discipline practice. We don't want our churches to encourage hypocrites, right? We don't want our churches who, who are hardened and confirmed and lulled in their sins. We don't want to live that kind of life individually or as a church. Mark De Dever, not never, Mark Dever. Number two, for the good of other Christians as they see the danger of sin. Guys, guess what? Your pastor is not above reproach in this accountability in the sense that you can bring an accusation against me. If I am practicing sin, the Bible admonishes you to come and bring it. Come to me. You've got to follow the same rules everybody else does, Matthew 18, but there's a set-aside special instruction for pastors. Pastor Nate, Pastor Dean, myself... Listen to what the Scripture says in regards to a pastor who is sinning in a lifestyle of sin. Paul told Timothy that if a leader sins, he should be rebuked publicly. That's in front of all of you. And here's how you're supposed to do it. 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder, a pastor, except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. There's three things here to highlight. The first thing, if someone comes to you and says, you know, I think Pastor Jeremy, blah, 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 whatever, and it's an accusation of sin against me, are you to receive it? No. Now, what if there's multiple people who say, hey, we know Pastor Jeremy's been hanging out at the bar boozing it again. In fact, I saw him at the ABC store and he didn't even get out the door before he was chugging Mad Dog 2020. Must have been a rough week. <laughs> First off, what are you doing in there? <laughs> but in that situation, if there is genuine evidence, there's genuine proof of a sin. Guys, this is a serious matter. We're not, listen, we're not going to, if you're going to armchair quarterback every move your sister and brother makes, nah, that's not what this is about, okay? Because you watch me long enough, I can assure you I'm going to mess up. The idea is those who are sinning a lifestyle, camped out. I put my wife away and I start going out here. Yes, you have reason. You, have better. you had better for the sake of the church, for the purity of the church. Call me on the carpet. And it's the same principle. If somebody offends you, you go to them one-on-one -on -one and you try and win them. Maybe what happens is somebody comes and says, Hey, preacher, I, I, I walked in the other day and I saw you at your computer desk. Johnny was with me and Joe Bob was with me. And you didn't know we were there, but I noticed you were watching pornography. And we're here together right now coming to you to call you on the carpet and say, that's sin. Now, I got one of two things I can do there, right? I can call them liars, get out of my office. Or I can be humble and, if that's the case, say, guys, I have a problem. I need help. Now, if they're loving brothers, what they're going to do, hopefully, is bring me up in front of you guys. And they're going to admonish you and say, Here's what's happened. He's admitted. He's repented. And if I'm a good pastor, understanding, I'm going to step down. And what you're going to do is not throw rocks at me. You're not going to run my family off. You're going to love on us. You're going to try and bring repentance, reconciliation, restoration. Now, whether or not I assume the responsibility of pastor again, that's a whole other ball game. Okay, 
But restoration is still the goal. It's redemptive in nature. It's redemptive in process. And I'm not above it. I'm not immune to it. But these should be serious sins. They should be practicing sins. Not if, if you know, if Aaron's going to tell me about his fishing story and he says, man, that fish was this big and it was really this big. You know, we're not going to, he's lying. Gentry, come with me. <laughs> that fish wasn't this big, man. I measured it. No, no well, I mean, no, he was maybe this big. You know, liar. You know, bring him in front of the church. No. And so we got to be careful we don't jump the gun on these things, right? But we're talking serious situations. And so it's important that we do it right. For the health of the church as a whole, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We're the corporate witness of the church. Church discipline is a powerful tool in evangelism. People notice when our lives are different. People notice when our lives are different, especially when there's a whole community of people whose lives are different. Not people whose lives are perfect but whose lives are marked by genuinely trying to love God and love one another for the corporate witness of the church. Greg Willis, professor of church history at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, writes that in the pre-Civil War days, Southern Baptists excommunicated nearly 2% of their membership. How would you like to go to church back then? Every year. Incredible as it may seem, their churches grew in fact, their churches grew at twice the rate of the population growth. Guys, sometimes in order for the fruit tree to bear more fruit, it needs to be pruned. And so it's a practice that must be done. It's for the corporate witness. When churches are seen as conforming to the world, our evangelist task becomes, at the, it becomes more difficult. We become so like the unbelievers, they have no questions. They don't want to ask us because we're no different. May we live so live that the people are made con constructively curious by our lifestyle. Barna Research Group, I'm quoting from Bev Deck. You can tell her I borrowed a quote from her, from her Facebook page. When measuring the lifestyles, this is actually Barnard Research Group though, uh, when measuring the lifestyles, leisure habits, behaviors and attitudes of born-again Christians, there's no appreciable difference between us and the world except that Christians go to church, give money to church, and have more Bibles in their homes. That is a sad testament to the American church. We're not separated in any of the areas that make us distinct. And we should be. We should be. If salt loses its flavor, how can it be resalted? It's good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And I'm afraid our testimony as a whole in America, the church is, is being trampled underfoot. Again, why church discipline is for the glory of God. Last point, number five. Here we go. For the glory of God as we reflect His holiness. There's the scripture references. The most compelling reason to practice church discipline is to glorify God. That's why we're alive, guys. That's why you're created. You're not here for the job promotion. You're not here for the nice bass boat and the future home of retirement. Many of us will find ourselves in the home of retirement. But anyway, it's not for that reason. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So... Here we see again, Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. It implies you can be deceived, church. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. I didn't say it. Don't get mad at me. God said it. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, set apart. 
You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Church, we are different because of the grace of God. That's the only thing that separates us from the world is the grace of God. We know Him. We're known by Him. And therefore, we should reflect Him in who we are. Our biblical theology may explain church discipline. Our teaching and preaching may instruct about it. Our church leaders may encourage it. But it is only the church that may and must finally enforce discipline. Church discipline is part of being a healthy church. Greg Wills uh, writes that Christians in the past would have stated that a church without discipline would hardly have counted as a church. John Dagg writes, when, dis when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. That's a pretty bold statement, but it's a truthful statement. When discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. If we can't say what something is not, we can't very well say what it is. If we give up the ability to say what a Christian is not, we cannot meaningfully say what a Christian is. If we're going to be a healthy church, this is part of who we are. Conclusion. Our lives should back up our profession of faith. And so this week in this closing moment, I'm not just saying this closing moment because in an emotional moment you can do whatever in, in, and oftentimes prompted to. But I'm asking us church this week, let's do some prayerful reflecting. Is my profession of faith, my lifestyle matching that profession of faith? And if there's some areas in our lifestyle and our choices and the way we're doing things, if we're neglecting the gathering of the saints, if we're not in certain areas and practices, utilizing our spiritual gifts, we're not serving one another, we're not doing the things that God has called us to, then let's let God have His way with us to change us, to be the church He's called us to be. We need to love each other. Discipline is love. And we need to love each other. We need to hold each other accountable because all of us will have times when our flesh wants to go in a way different from what God has revealed in Scripture. Every one of us. And that's why we need the church. That's why I need you. That's why you need me. That's why we need each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your truth. Thank you, Lord, that uh, it is sharp, it is powerful, and it cuts. It's a two-edged sword, I understand. It, uh, it shines a light, it, it, it causes us to see where we don't see. And so, Lord, have your way in us. Help us this week as we go throughout our daily living. I, I, I pray your Holy Spirit will just help us to commune with you in, in our daily time in your word and in prayer. And Lord, help us to be searched. Search us, try us, consume all our darkness. May it be brought to the light. And may we as your children walk in the light. And we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.